Welcome to the Metal Tech Podcast, this region's leading business podcast, shining a light on technology, entrepreneurship, and the future of business in Kentucky and beyond. Our goal is to advance the ecosystem by bringing attention to the founders, changemakers, innovators, and those supporting them. Middle Tech's content can be found on your favorite podcast streaming app, social channels, and YouTube. We encourage you to follow and participate in the conversation. Let's discuss and build the future. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You've got Evan Knowles with Logan Jones here. And we just sat down with Stacy Griggs of El Toro. So this episode was a long time coming. We've been wanting to sit down with El Toro for a while now. We just visited their headquarters in Louisville, Kentucky for this interview. El Toro is building cookie-less IP targeting, which allows their clients that are brands to target people with ads with extreme personalization and accuracy. So it's an emerging technology. They've been around for a while, but it's still a new uh, technology in the advertising space, and it is about to explode. So El Toro knows where you have been. They know where you live, uh, and they're collecting this data in a way that uses does not use cookies, which are viewed as predatory and is in violation of a lot of new privacy standards out there in the world. So while they're collecting a lot of this data on people on the internet, uh, they're doing it in a way that's way safer than what has been done previously, or at least it's done in a way that mat, that meets a lot of the, the standards. And so because they're cookie-less, they're seeing hyper-growth. Uh, and by far, El Toro is one of Kentucky's most successful startups right now. Yeah, it was an absolutely awesome conversation. Stacy is a very, very interesting guy. And we got to discuss a lot about his, his background, his path to becoming CEO of El Toro. So he actually got to go through two exits with two different companies. And he's got a ton of experience building building companies into essentially just behemoths. So that's what's going on with El Toro right now. Like Evan said, they're going through some hyper growth. And we're really looking forward to you hearing this episode and like we always do, we're just going to get a quick word from our sponsors before we dive in. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Land Betterment. Land Betterment is doing some incredible work throughout Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky as they are taking abandoned strip mines and putting sustainable businesses in their place. These businesses not only provide a useful repurposing of the land, but they also provide great jobs to replace the mining jobs that were lost when the mine was shut down. To learn more about Land Betterment, you can listen to our interview with their founders, Mark Jensen and Kirk Taylor, on episode 97, or visit their website at landbetterment.com. We're also sponsored by Airwing Ventures. Airwing helps determined entrepreneurs seeking resources to grow with capital and connections in order to build successful companies and impactful legacies. They're all about high-growth companies, high-growth careers, and high-growth communities. I've personally known Dan Beldy for about four years now, and I've seen the work he's been doing in the community, and we should all feel very blessed and grateful that a VC like himself is here in Kentucky. I encourage you to connect with Airwing and learn more. Let's all grow this state together. You can reach out to Dan at info at airwing.vc or dan at airwing.vc, and their website is www.airwing.vc. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see the ecosystem of other startups who are 
starting up using our technology as kind of a, a backbone and then building on top of what we've, uh, what we've built. And, and then you've also got, you know, people that'll, uh, like work for you, say, you know what, I got a different idea and go start their own thing. Uh, it's, it's one of the things Endeavor talks about, you know, kind of a, a big bubble, yeah. you know, that you've got, you know, you know, this chart with bubbles and lines connecting them, showing, you know, how companies were funded, you know, where their, where their founders came from, you know, if they were related to, you know, other companies in the ecosystem. And they've got a great chart on, it was either Brazil or Argentina, where, you know, they had before Endeavor, very little entrepreneurial activity, very few you know big bubbles like big you know scale up types of companies and then you know after 10 years of endeavor you know they had these four or five companies that had dominated the ecosystem and those four or five companies had some sort of interrelation to about a hundred other startups in the ecosystem yeah i've always talked about that's one of the things missing in kentucky is those companies that start get big and then pull others into the ecosystem or they exit and then they supply resources and capital to those that come next. Yeah. I, uh, and, and this won't be the first time people have heard me say this, you know, but people that have never heard me talk publicly, I, I've talked about this concept I call Louisville rich that, you know, people will build a company here, have a $10 million exit and, you know, and they're slapping hands and happy and, and, and with $10 million in Louisville, that's enough to live for the rest of your life. And you, you can put that money to work at Goldman Sachs or Merrill Lynch or, you know, some wealth advisor and, and just live off of that for the rest of your life and really not get back involved in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. If you have a $10 million exit and, Austin or, or Silicon Valley, people are going to say, what the hell happened? Yeah. Uh, you know, like, I'm sorry you failed. What are you going to do next to redeem yourself? And, you know, so we need to work to hold people to a higher standard here to, you know, say, look, we don't just have to solve problems for Kentucky. We can solve problems for the world. And if you solve problems for the world, it's pretty valuable. So we, we, you know, when we solve those types of things, and by the way, like, there's nothing wrong with like selling a company for $10 million, but man, I would hope people would dream bigger. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's, so give everybody who you are, your title. Let's just keep rolling with this. I think it's awesome. Give your title and then let's uh, talk about El Toro and what El Toro is. Yeah. I'm Stacy Griggs, uh, CEO of El Toro. Um, El Toro is a ad tech and advanced analytics company. We, we started eight years ago, really focused on ad tech. We had this thesis that you know, most ad tech gets it wrong. Most ad tech at the time and still today is targeted based off of cookies. Little snippets of code that are you know, self-reported user data that you know, reside on your browser. There's been a lot of announcements recently about cookies going away, which frankly is uh, great for us because we've never used them. And most of the rest of the ad tech ecosystem is built on you know, some you know, cookies or derivation of cookies. But we patented a process, and today we hold over a dozen patents. We've got another 16 patents pending. On, and, you know, but our core process that we started eight years ago was mapping an IP address to a home address hyper-accurately. Then we added another interesting variable, which is a device ID. So then we could look at devices and say, well, here's a device that's attached to a home. So we know home address and we know device. And by the way, we see this device going to a bunch of car dealerships recently. That probably tells us something about that possible consumer. And, you know, that really started us into a mobile location line of business as well that then got us into an advanced analytics business of, you know, who goes to your, who goes to your store 
And how often do they go to your store? And what sort of wallet share do you have from that consumer? And how do we then use advertising to increase your wallet share? But, you know, at, at the core, everything we do is measurable. You know, most ad campaigns are measuring clicks and click-through rate. And or cost just impressions. Click. Yeah, impressions. Yeah. And, you know, we've got one of our resellers in town today. And, you know, and you know he was bragging about, like, how good the click-through rates were on his campaigns. And I'm like, look, that's fool's gold. Like, I, I, I get that you're happy, but, you know, I want you to actually get your clients to start measuring something more meaningful, which is sales. And, you know, when you use something like Google or Facebook, they don't know who you're targeting. They they don't know those people's addresses. They can't marry that data with your CRM. You know, the best they can do is tell you if you got like an email address. When you know somebody clicked on the ad and said, yeah, I give my email address to that customer. But you know, we're very much about taking the the loop and closing it and you know taking the addresses we've mapped to IP addresses, you know, or device IDs, and then saying, did that person actually buy from you? And how much more likely were they to buy from you than people in a control group? So let's get a little bit more depth to this. What exactly is an IP address? Yeah, so an IP address is it's a numerical identifier that is how internet traffic is routed. So you think about, you know, you've got a street address, 123 Main Street. An IP address is, uh, you know, a number like, you know, 8.8.8.8 is actually the most famous IP address in the world. It is a Google IP address that if you want to ping and look at latency or response time, most people go ping 8.8.8.8. But uh, fun fact. Yeah, yeah, fun fact. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, but you know, that's the thing. You know, IP addresses are how traffic gets from point A to point B on the internet. Gotcha. So it's almost like an address for the internet world. Yeah, it's and, an address for the internet. World. And then you're mapping those to actual physical addresses. And so you're getting both of those data points on a consumer that yep. allow you to leverage that data and, and find more insights. And, and we also collect several trillion points of mobile location all opt-in every week. So then we can, in addition to IP address and home address, map a device ID to home address and IP address. How much of the data you guys have is first party versus third party that you're bringing in through APIs? Talk about that relationship. Yeah, so we've got about 10,000 different apps and APIs that we partner with that we buy opt-in data from. And then obviously we produce a, a very robust stream of data ourselves. And then, you know, we're really almost like a Rosetta Stone in that your, your tech companies and ad tech companies don't generally have home address. So we can then, you know, partner with anybody else who has home address data. So think about any of the voter file vendors for political targeting. Think about Experian, who has this really robust consumer file data and persona metrics, and, but it's all keyed to home address. They don't really have any idea of who you are digitally. And, and, and we're that Rosetta Stone that translates, you know, that you can use Experian and target people digitally or use our data and then figure out via Experian like uh, who, you know, who your customers are. Yeah, and give, give a use case that the audience might resonate with or have been had, had experience with. Well, I'll, I'll give you a couple because we, we actually have a very prosaic business these days. You know, in the early days, we really sold to marketing departments. And what we found is that there's been this explosion in who our buyers are. So on the marketing side of things, we work with one of the largest auto OEMs in the world. And we actually work with three of them. But, you know, an example of what we do for one of them is we take 20,000 new car dealerships in the U.S. every day, and we look at foot traffic to those car dealerships. We collect the device IDs where people have opted in that we can collect that data. And then when we see you go to a second new car dealership in a time-limited manner, we know that you're probably shopping for a car. And then based off of the type of dealerships you're visiting, we 
probably know what kind of car you're looking for. If you visit a, you know, a Toyota and a Honda dealership, that gives us a pretty good likelihood of the type of vehicle you're looking for. If you visit a Chevy and a Ford dealership, it gives us a pretty good idea of the likelihood of the type of vehicle you're looking for. If you visit Mercedes and Lexus, again, you know, we can figure it out. But we then take that data and we do a couple of things with it. One is we immediately start digitally advertising to the people that are kind of in frame that we should be advertising to for the client. We also take that data and we rub it against their CRM. So we've built in through a, through a third-party tool into their top 1,000 dealer CRMs. And we can then look at their past clients. And if we identify one of their past clients as being in market for a vehicle, we don't say that we saw Evan at this Ford dealership. We just say, hey, Evan, your past client is showing some signs that he might be interested in a Ford right now or might be interested in a Chevy right now. So we're going to you know, flash that as a alert at the dealer level for the CRM. And then the third thing we do is we take that data and we send it to a secure print partner so they can also send a postcard that generally arrives within 24 to 48 hours at your house by us taking your device ID, mapping it to a home address, and then taking that home address and send it to a secure print partner. So it really gives us digital, direct mail, and then advanced analytics, you know, like via like CRM enrichment. And then on the back end, we can go through and, you know, what we're seeing is that people that we target are anywhere from 25 to 30% more likely to buy a vehicle from this manufacturer than people that we identified that we didn't target. Hmm. And I guess you guys are pretty reliant. So with GDPR and many of these privacy policies coming up, I guess you guys are pretty reliant on these opt-ins from the consumer perspective. Where are those taking place? Are they on, let's say, one of your clients' first-party apps, or where are they opting in? So first of all, we don't work in Europe. And you know, it's, it's, it's a two-factor thing. You know, going into another continent is expensive, mm-hmm. and it's it's a mistake I see a lot of tech companies make far too early. You know, that you think you need dots on a map, and you've got to have an office in London, and, and an office in Dubai, and an office in Singapore, and next thing you know, you're spending $10 million on offices, and how much revenue are they bringing in? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, we've been growing at a very rapid rate. I want to say three years ago, Deloitte named us the 13th fastest growing tech company, public or private, in North America. Wow. We had a 12,000, 13,000% growth rate over, I forget if it was three or five years, but like hyper growth yeah. really fast. And you know, since then, our growth slowed down some. We're basically doubling in size every two years at this point. But if you're continuing to grow at, call it 50%, 60% year over year, like I would rather invest my money on that than you know something speculative like let's let's put some dots on the map and see how yeah. it goes. The other thing is it's really hard to do what we do with this level of accuracy and granularity in Europe. So like if, even if we we're putting dots on the map, Europe, Europe wouldn't be the place we go. We've done limited work outside the United States, usually and you know call it Central America and the Caribbean, and usually for a political campaign because if you're running for president of a country, you've got the kind of money that it would take for us to kind of come in and do a bunch of dynamic mapping of your voter populace and then integrate with your pollster and figure out how to get your right message to the right people. Hmm. But something like CCPA, which is the California Consumer Privacy Act, we're huge supporters of the CCPA. We're a registered data broker under the California uh, Attorney General. And, you know, I think that things like CCPA make it easier for people to, you know, come to grips with the amount of data that's out there and give them some tools that if they want to proactively opt out of somebody using their data, they can. And, you know, and, you know, the thing is, you know, CCPA has been the law for over a year now and very, very 
small percentage of California residents have opt out of us using their data or other vendors using their data. Yeah. I think it's a trade-off with consumers because they know that, you know, their, their data is being used to give them better experiences on the internet and more personalized experiences. So I think it's just a really interesting experiment that as like GDPR and the California version of it, you know, as those things become more popular, how are consumers going to react? And so that's an interesting data point you mentioned there, but talk about, you know, your background, how did you arrive to El Toro and what have you done in the past that made you the right fit? Sure. Sorry, I have to. Yeah, I think on your how to be a good podcast guest, it was don't clear your throat. But, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, you guys can do that. Nature gets post. in the way. It's yeah. okay. But for some reason, my throat's a little scratchy tonight. But I grew up in Kentucky. You know, back in the early '90s, there weren't a huge number of economic opportunities here, so uh, a lot of people in my generation, you know, post school went someplace else. And you know, I moved to Lexington for a year. I was working for Humana. I got transferred to Lexington, and Humana wanted to transfer me to some other place. And I wasn't in love with the places they wanted to transfer me to. You know, every couple months it was, uh, you know, a different opportunity. And I finally said, if we're going to have to move anyway, I just gotten married. And uh, you know, I told my wife, I said, we're probably going to have to move. So why don't we pick where we move? And you know, let's you know, let's answer a call from a headhunter. So I was called by a hospital system in Delaware. I had to look at a map to figure out where Delaware was. I'd never been there. And, you know, went out and interviewed with them the next week. The uh, two weeks later, they brought my wife out and we spent the weekend in Delaware and it was a great place. And we lived in Delaware for 15 years. You know, while working at that hospital system, I became very close with the CIO and he left to become the CIO at the University of Pennsylvania's health system. And, you know, Penn is a uh, you know, huge health system, you know, Ivy League, very prestigious. And, you know, he met with me the morning he was resigning and he's like, uh, you're coming with me. And uh, I mean, great decision for me because uh, we lived a mile from each other. You know, I was, you know, really his right hand for, you know, you know, as a you know, very young executive helping him, you know, implement decisions. But we also got I got great mentorship by just being in a car one hour to work and one hour home each day, each way with him because we lived a mile from each other. Nice. You know, so it was a fantastic relationship for me, fantastic relationship for him. This is Y2K. So we got pinned through Y2K. We spent money like drunken sailors. And, and, you know, and, you know, post Y2K, you know, I wanted to figure out what was next. And, you know, there weren't going to be cool and exciting opportunities as budgets got really reined in with IT and at Penn. So I decided, let's try consulting. And uh, I went to a consulting firm. Within a year, I was a partner. And we grew it. It was a small boutique. It was about 12 people when I joined. It was 80 people when I sold. We had an exit where two of the partners sold to the other two partners. So, uh, you know, nice exit that we scaled up. We did work for governments. We did work for uh, Citibank, J.P. Morgan. You know, some really interesting projects. But, you know, I, um, I was part of a team. I was the the consulting partner lead for a team that built a product for one of our clients. And we charged the client several million dollars in consulting fees. So my partners were happy about it, but the client sold that software. They sold about a half billion dollars of that software within the first year. And, you know, it really, you know, struck myself and our CTO is we're doing, we're in the wrong business. Yeah. We're, 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 slapping hands because we're collecting pennies and our clients are collecting, you know, like $20 bills. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we went back and we said we should be in a different business. And our, our other two partners were quite happy with the business we were in. And uh, we said, well, you know, we're going to do something where we can, you know, more fully 
participate in the economic value that we're creating. I got involved in a kind of quick exit to a public company, which was fun, and decided that I didn't like working for the public company we exited to, but did like the, you know, kind of scale up exit, those types of things. So I got in the infrastructure as a service place for a company or with a company called Host My Site and, you know, was one of the, you know, three senior leaders there. We built that, sold it, great exit uh, for us, for our team, and, and sold it to a private equity firm at that point. You know, I've been in Delaware for 15 years. My uh, kids didn't really know their family other than vacations. My dad was terminally ill. And I'm like, you know what? Why don't we move back to Kentucky? You know, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur at this point, so I, I can live. You know, I can create my own job. I can live wherever. And I had an opportunity in the infrastructure as a service space with a company here to join, take an equity position, a company called Maximum ASP in Louisville. And we had, you know, came in. Built a data center, we're on a rapid scale path, and then had a just interesting offer come in from a publicly traded company. And, you know, weren't necessarily for sale, but it was such a compelling offer that we ended up taking it and sold to a publicly traded company and uh, spent a year post-acquisition working for the publicly traded company and decided that's you know, I wanted to be entrepreneurial again. And my partners at El Toro had invented this really cool technology, and I came over and drank bourbon with them for two weeks. And at the end of two weeks, they said, we want you to be a CEO. And I'm like, well, what is it, you know, that makes me the CEO you're looking for? And they're like, well, you have shirts with buttons. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, well, I'm like, well, let, let me help you with a few things here. And, you know, so I'm like, we need to go out and file some patents. And, you know, we, you know at this point, the company didn't have a, web, a website. Like they were so focused on building the technology that we hadn't built a website. You know, so I, I said, by the way, I built us a website over the weekend. And I'm like, you can like it or not like it, but now we have a website. And, you know, by the way, like we're patent pending now, you know, those types of things. And, but it was, you know, really like, they needed somebody that had done some things that they hadn't done before to come in and say, these are the, you know, these are the processes we need to follow to turn a great idea into a great company. And before we move on from some of these exits that you went through, take us through some of your biggest learnings going through some of those exits. I know that's a broad question. I'm sure there's all sorts of different learnings, but maybe what are some of your most significant learnings from exiting those companies? Well, you know, really one of the things that is important, like, um, you need to make sure that you're aligned with, and every exit that I've had, I would say worked out pretty well. You know, now you know, that doesn't mean that everybody keeps their job. Uh, in some cases, it meant that I didn't keep my job. But you know, at the end of the day, you've got to understand you know what the buyer wants to do. When we sold host my site to to a private equity group, you know their thesis, and you know, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, would would be that we were some yahoos who got lucky, and that these guys with MBAs were going to come in and really run this ship much better. And by the way, is this a PG rated or R rated? Uh, all right, good. Yeah. Uh, like I, I, I should have <laughs> set up those ground rules. It's you know, it's, it's on your. Well, it is on your how to be a good podcast host, uh, ask, and I forgot to ask, or how to be a good podcast guest. But, you know, the, you know, but, you know, we, we went through this process and, and, you know, I realized that, and and I was leading sales for the company, but I had this kind of weird role that, you know, I was sales, but I also did some tech stuff. And that's one of the things I like about being entrepreneurial is like, you don't have to have a clearly defined role. You can, you can do interesting things that are, you know, that you wouldn't see in a bigger company. And so I had some operational responsibilities and, but 
you know, they, they ended up bringing in a, a new VP of sales and they offered me a chance to be the general manager for their flagship data center. And, 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 and I said, I don't want to do that. And uh, they said, why? And I said, well, first of all, it's unfair to him because, you know, I'm going to be the dethroned former king hanging around here and like either things go badly for him and I'll get blamed or things go badly for him. And people say, well, you know, Stacy can do that. So I'm like, it's unfair for him. And the second thing is, you know, you guys have this thesis that, you know, I don't believe in, which is that, you know, we, we were, you know, people who were largely lucky and not very good. And, and I said, the, the thing is my worst year, we grew 50% organically. And, you know, that's, that's high cotton. And, and you, 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 you come in and say, well, you know, gosh, like we wish you had more PowerPoint and, and you know, you know what, we're not a super PowerPointy type of company. And, you know, we're very much about automating, you know, customer sales process and those types of things. And they, you know, they wanted to get more into enterprise sales. And most of our enterprise customers had actually started as very small customers that we graduated to enterprise customers. And, you know, and one of the things they want to do was get rid of the small customer base, you know, well, you know, and I'm like, no, like, like we, we can profitably service somebody paying us 19 bucks a month. And, but that $19 a month customer, you know, in some cases has become a $30,000 a month customer. And, you know, so we don't want to get rid of those $19 a month customers because it's the best source of sales leads we have for enterprise sales. Yeah. And I'm sure they were looking at the big picture coming in and seeing all these enterprise clients and not realizing, you know, you guys who had built it and had the experience of growing those small customers. That's up. exactly it. Uh, but speaking on sales and on this topic of sales, when we got on the phone with you, you know, I'm in sales right now. Evan's got a, a robust background in sales. We kind of looked at each other and we're like, that dude's a killer salesperson. Just something about the way you talk and the way you tell your stories. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what is it, what's your take on what it takes to be a great salesperson? You know, I would say authenticity and, you know, being really knowledgeable about your, your area. And, you know, I, when I first started the consulting company, you know, it was the person who was in charge of sales there was, you know, like he was telling me how hard sales was. And, you know, and, and I said, well, it doesn't seem to be that hard to me. I, you know, never really done it before, but it would seem that like we solve problems for businesses. And, you know, so we had, you know, dozen or so employees, a couple of them were sitting on the bench. So that's a terribly unprofitable situation for a consulting company. So I, you know, I, I, had a friend that I went to church with that was, uh, you know, an executive at a fast-growing company. And I called him. I said, you know, can you just let me meet with your director of IT and app dev? And I just want to talk to him about, like, my new role and, and see what, you know, what challenges they have. And I, you know, I went in, I talked to, uh, I talked to this uh, gentleman and, you know, at the end of a couple hours, we had architected a solution. I'm like, you know, we can do that in about a year with five people. And he goes, well, can you start next week? And I'm like, well, I've only got a couple people available right now, but we couldn't, you know, get them started next week. And, you know, within, you know, two weeks of starting at the company, you know, we, we had this huge new client and I'm like, guys, like this doesn't seem like you're making it out to be super hard and like I get sales is hard. But you know, the thing is, if you love what you do, if you believe in your product and you're, you're like, you're credible, you know, you're going to be successful in sales. And by the way, you're probably going to be successful in just about anything else. I think what you said there is really important because I think there's a misconception about sales and people think of car salesmen or people th trying to shove things down somebody else's throat. And what you said there is so important, which is you're almost a, a problem solver. You're the front lines of a business helping people solve problems and you're consulting with them. And that leads to 
a sale. And I think that's really important for people that don't know much about sales to understand is that that salesperson is there to learn and listen, first of all, and then help them solve their problems. So I heard this story from a salesperson I respect a lot recently, and he was living in a house. He didn't really know his neighbor. And the neighbor was putting grass clippings out on the, you know, out on the street and it was chunking up the street. So he went over and, you know, this guy's a tough guy. He's a retired Marine officer, goes over, talks to his, you know, knocks on his neighbor's door, introduces himself. And he says, look, you know, I'm like your, your grass clippings are like on the street. And like, I'd love to figure out how to do something about it. And the guy just starts yelling at him and cussing. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, he's sitting here thinking like, damn, I'm about to get in a fight with my neighbor over grass clippings. But he's like, hold on, let me step back for a second. So instead of like arguing, instead of getting into a like defensive posture, he's like, are you okay? Like, you know, I just came to talk to you about grass clippings and you jumped my shit. So like, you know, is everything okay? And like, and it turns out this guy was having some, you know, some issues, health issues. And he's like, look, I'll clean up the grass clippings. Like, I'm not coming, telling, like, you know, if you, if you're having problems cleaning up the grass clippings, I'll do it for you. And so I called him back today and I'm like, uh, so have you talked to your neighbor anymore? He's like, no, I haven't. And I'm like, if I were you, I'd take him a beer tomorrow. Uh, you know, like this is a neighbor and, you know, you, you've had, you know, like one interaction that probably surprised the hell out of him because, uh, you know, he, he came at you hard and you, yeah, and you came at him soft, which, you know, that's the thing. Like the better you understand people, the, you know, the, the more you can, you know, and, and, and you know, like all these things you can read from like being in meetings and, you know, and get from books and those types of things. I'm like, you know, take him a beer tomorrow. And, and, you know, and, and I bet you'll have a friend for life. Yeah. Makes sense. Let's let's revisit El Toro real quick and talk about the ad space and where you see it going because it changes fast. And like you said, there's new regulation being put in place. And let's revisit the cookie discussion we almost had there, which was cookies are going away and that positions you all very uniquely. What does that look like in the future going forward from the consumer's perspective and those not, that might be listening? Yeah, I mean, I really want to say, woo! Uh, probably so well positioned. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've been the the you know the you know the anti cookie kings evangelist, whatever you want to say, for the last eight years, and and you know all of a sudden, uh, a simple change by Google makes it so that everybody's looking for a new way to do things, mm. and so the, you know that that has been really one of the best tailwinds we could have. We've had more inbound interest from really big brands in the last six months than yeah than we've ever had and and you know people that you know like we talked to before that you know were happy with whatever they were doing before because you know let's face it change is difficult and and and, and especially like you know we we deal with a lot of ad agencies and resellers and you know our pitch generally is that you know you guys have been wasting a lot of your clients money and, 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 you know, it's sometimes tough to go back to a client as an ad agency and say, hey, you know what, we were wrong, you know, and, and like, you know, all that, you know, click through rate and cost per click and that type of stuff that we've been measuring, that's not really the best way to measure this. And, and there's a better way, but, you know, but the flip side is just because you've been doing something poorly for years, doesn't mean that you should be ashamed to change. And, and Google has all of a sudden made it so that people are, are desperate for, you know, new and in this case, a better solution. Yeah. And let's also talk about, so that, that, so the, how does that affect 
the consumer. So let's, I want to get that, that answer there. So as a consumer, you're having your data tracked as you go through the internet on various websites. And many people are collecting those and selling it to people that you might not want them to have your data and your traffic and how you go throughout the internet. And now without cookies, that consumer's data is, you know, more protected. Yeah, I, I would generally agree with that. And, you know, and, and I've always thought cookies were, you know, extraordinarily invasive. And, you know, I mean, you, you, you theoretically, every time you go to a website, think of it like stepping inside somebody's living room. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you step in their living room, they got a list of rules on their wall. And, you know, those are the house rules. And when you go to somebody's website, there's terms of service on the website. And they generally talk about how they can use your data and what they can use your data for. And, you know, and, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, I'll have people, you know, talk about like cell phone data. I'm like, well, you know, the thing is, like, cell phone, you know, like, all we're looking at is where did you go? You know, that's, that's you know, and, and, and we care, like, what we care about is where did you go of commercial interest? You know, so, I mean, like, I'm not trying to figure out if you went to an ex-girlfriend's house. Yeah. And, you know, we've got all kinds of policies in place to, you know, make sure that that doesn't happen. You know, we, we do advertising for big brands. And, and, you know, then they don't want to use the data for something like that. But, you know, the, you know, in the cookie world, you know, like the types of data that were collected were so much more invasive and, and just potentially harmful for people that I'm glad they're going away. Yeah. And to, to kind of move on from the ad space, I'm more of a random question that we kind of discussed on our call. Uh, you mentioned Bitcoin on our call on a project. You're kind of working with Bitcoin. Why are you passionate about it? What, what about Bitcoin do you really like that resonates with you? So if, if you're my age, you remember when the internet came out and I was, I got my first computer when I was 12 years old. It was Commodore 64. I had like a 14.4 baud modem and I would, you know, get into bulletin boards with my buddies and that type of stuff. And then a browser came out and the internet actually became usable. And, you know, I remember working at the, the first hospital I went to in Delaware and, you know, asking for internet access at work and you know they're like why would you need that <laughs> and I'm like because it's going to be an important part of my job but it just hasn't been an important part of, my, of that job until now but you know it is an important part of the job i'm like do you guys really want me to have to go home to do my work you know because i don't have the proper tools here yeah but like i was I, I had to fill out forms to get access to the internet because not everybody had it and, and it was actually an exception versus the rule at that point. And, and I look at how the Internet has democratized access to the world's information. And I think that cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in particular is democratizing the monetary system. You know, China has recently banned Bitcoin mining. They're, you know, they might actually, they prosecute a little bit that they might ban like the possession of cryptocurrencies. And, you know, and, you know, there's two stories on it. One is, you know, China is struggling to produce enough power for a rapidly growing population. They're building about 100 new coal power, coal power plants per year, but power is very cheap in China. So they, you know, 50% of the world's Bitcoin mining got spun up in China because there was cheap power. And now Bitcoin mining was using so much power that there was enough power for Chinese. That's that's a very plausible story. But, you know, I, I think the more, you know, the, the more accurate scenario is that the Chinese government is terrified Give of, control. of, you know, losing control. And, and, you know, everything they do is about controlling their population. 
And, you know, this is, you know, this is democratization of commerce and currency. And if they lose that, they lose. So, of course, they like, I mean, they just woke up one day and realized, oh, shit, Bitcoin's going to fuck us. And then and, and, and shut down half the world's Bitcoin mining. Now, I had started a process of setting up a Bitcoin mining operation to produce power that was on par or cheaper than what China was producing by taking what are called trapped natural gas wells. You, know, you put a hole in the ground, you find half a billion cubic feet of natural gas. It's three miles from a connecting pipeline. It's really not economically viable to spend millions of dollars to build a pipeline to that small amount of gas. Well, we can go out and buy that natural gas well very cheaply. In fact, almost in every case, for less than the cost of what it, t- what it took to put the hole in the ground. It takes about a quarter million dollars to put the hole in the ground, and we're not paying near that for wells. But you buy the well, you put a generator on it, and then you take uh, that really cheap natural gas, you turn it into really cheap electricity, you connect it to a Connex pod uh, filled with Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency miners, and you produce really cheap Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. Natural gas is... Uh, you know, 10% of the CO2 emissions of coal. So we're taking something that was largely using coal in China and we're moving it to something that is essentially 10 times cleaner from an ESG perspective. And it is, we've got a cost basis on our power that's about 40% lower than the industry leaders. That wow. is such a fascinating project. How, how'd you come into that? Like, where did that, where'd that originate? Well, you know, like a lot of projects, it happened over a drink. And as COVID, you know, as COVID was winding on, I realized there are all these really cool people in the Louisville entrepreneurial ecosystem that I just haven't seen for a while. And, you know, as you guys know, we have this kick-ass bourbon bar at our office. So I started going through people I hadn't seen in a while and saying, come over for a bourbon. And uh, I invited Demetrius Gray from WeatherCheck over for a bourbon. And Demetrius's uh, grandfather invented the horizontal well for fra- horizontal drill for fracking. And Demetrius's grandfather gave Demetrius the idea. And so after we talked about it over bourbon, I think it was a Thursday or Friday night. I called him on Monday, and I'm like, "I did a pitch deck for your business. You know, can we can we talk? Because I think it's a billion or two billion dollar opportunity. And you know, like you, sh- you like it shouldn't be limited to just like mining some some Bitcoin on one natural gas well in Hopkins County. And so we went out. We're about to close a $22 million A round. We're actually, with the Chinese situation, looking at how we can even amp up power supply quicker. So we're talking to some power plants about buying some traditional power plants and becoming a large independent electric producer. That's a whole other conversation in itself, I'm sure. But that's that's super fascinating stuff. And you kind of mentioned it there about having people over to have a bourbon. And we were talking about the Louisville ecosystem and kind of maximizing those bump-ins and allowing that to happen. So I, I want to kind of use that topic to talk about Kentucky and the local ecosystem. So let's dive into what Kentucky and maybe even Louisville specifically is doing right uh, and maybe what they're not not doing right as well. Well, certainly one of the things I've wanted for a long time is more density in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And, you know, the building we're sitting in is, you know, 76,000 square feet of density. We've got a a really cool co-working space on the first floor, which is uh, Logic. Logic's an NPO. It's the old Moose Lodge. And this is their pivot. They've got, you know, Moose Lodges all around the world, but, you know, like you're not really going to open more Moose Lodges. And, you know, what do you do with, you know, you know, a huge balance sheet and, you know, a heart for how do you serve your communities? 
And, you know, co-working is kind of their, you know, next generation of here's what we're going to go into next. But, you know, it's co-working with uh, a cafe, a restaurant, a, um, a child care facility and a child care facility that's open till 10 p.m. at night. A child care facility that you don't have to like you don't have to buy every day. You, you can buy 10 hour blocks and you know, drop your child off for two hours uh, while you come in for dinner or while you get your haircut in the in the office. But, you know. Looking at density, there was a company that's in Logic, Climavision, that just raised a $100 million A round. And, you know, that's something that historically we haven't done a good job of sharing that type of success in Louisville. Mm -hmm. You know, I would go to entrepreneurial events and, and actually, you know, Sometimes I hear things and, you know, you have a little bit to drink, you hear something you disagree with. So then you like, you stand up and say, well, you know, that's not necessarily true. But, you know, I was at one of these events probably two years ago and, you know, there was a gentleman that stood up and he's like, you can't build a successful entrepreneurial company in Louisville. And I said, hmm, that's interesting. You know, I, I have, and I know lots of other people that have. So, you know, I, I, after he talked, I said, do you mind if I say something? And he's like, no. And I'm like, you're right. You can't build a successful entrepreneurial company in Louisville. <laughs> now, maybe you can go to San Francisco and build a successful entrepreneurial company, but I know lots of people doing it here. And I would argue that there are advantages to building a company in a place like Louisville, that you've got lower cost real estate, you've got lower cost talent, you know, because you don't have to pay people San Francisco wages to have a really good living here in Louisville. And, you know, you know, you know, and, you know the, the knocks on a place like Louisville or Cincinnati or uh, Columbus is, hey, you don't have as deep of a talent pool. That's right. But you also don't have as many sharks in that talent pool competing for the same talent. You know, so, you know, not as deep a talent pool, but also not as much competition for that talent. But you also have to be smart about talent in a place like Louisville. You've got to, like, partner with places like Interapt and Code Louisville and Microsoft Future Work and the University of Louisville and University of Kentucky and, and build programs with them that meet your needs so that, you know, they're, they're turning out people that fit the jobs we, fit the jobs we have. So, you know, that's some good, some bad. We talked a little bit, I don't know if this was pre-podcast starting, but, you know, th there's there's also this concept that, you know, you get people, th there seem to be some people that started companies here and exited pretty early. And, you know, they exited for, you know, call it $10 million. And like, $10 million is great. But, you know, in Louisville, that becomes Louisville rich. You don't have to do it again. You can live on $10 million for the rest of your life. And bully for you. But in a place like San Francisco, if you exit for only $10 million, people are going to say, what the hell happened? Like, what, what are you going to do next? And, you know, I don't know that we've necessarily had that level of expectations for each other in Louisville historically. And then the, the other thing is, you know, I've seen some, you know, companies that had, you know, an interesting initial promise. And, you know, they got, they got particularly predatory term sheets where they ended up giving, you know, 50, 60% of their equity for not a huge, you know, call it angel round or seed round. And, and, you know, and, you know, at, you know, fairly low valuations. And that means you're gut shot. Like you can't go out and raise substantial equity after that. And, you know, so it, you know, takes what was potentially a promising idea that if, you know, the investors had, understood the damage they were going to do to that company by, you know, kind of demanding, you know, 
not a pound of flesh, but 10 pounds of flesh, that they wouldn't have done it. And and I, I think that's changing as well. You know, like I said, I, I just raised $22 million or I'm closing $22 million on something that was a PowerPoint deck four months ago. You know, Climate Vision raised $100 million on, uh, you know, on, on, on a startup. Uh, and, you know, and that's the thing, you know, like money's movable. Like if you're not finding the term sheets you need in Louisville or Columbus, get on a plane and go to New York or L.A. Now, be prepared for the fact that I've also seen businesses that get funded in a place like Louisville with angel investors that never would have gotten funded in the Valley. You know, because like, you know, they would have gotten tougher questions and, you know, and, and you see people get, you know, half a million or a million dollars for an idea here that just never would have gotten funded if like the investors had been a little bit more like, come on, like really that's the play. Hmm. Right. Yeah, for sure. Now we hear a lot of those same things, anything from the density of it and also just the funding landscape here. I think even, you know, Evan's going through that right now yeah. with, with Simba raising money for your startup. But as we always do, we like to end on kind of a forward-looking statement on your business and being the CEO of El Toro. What's your what's your vision? Where do you want to take El Toro into the future? Well, yeah, yeah. I had uh, one of our senior developers the other day look at me. He's like, "This is going to be a billion-dollar company," and I'm like, "You know what? I think you're right." And you know, we are very focused on you know not not like the the economics of like we want to be a billion-dollar company, but how are we changing the world? And, and, you know, and solving big problems with data and increasingly they're not just problems in marketing. I, I mentioned earlier, I'd talk uh, about like some different examples, but we're doing a bunch of work in recruitment and talent acquisition. Mm. We're doing a bunch of work in, in like we're doing work in the governmental space to help reduce uh, traffic accidents. You know, we're doing work in the governmental space. Uh, we did a project with a, a city recently, and the CFO of the city said, I will go to any conference you want and and talk on your behalf because the ROI we gave them on delinquent tax collections. I mean, that's that's not a sexy business, but there's trillions of dollars in delinquent tax collections. And we gave them a very efficient way to take those people that were delinquent and put an amnesty offer in front of them that like, hey, just just pay us the taxes. Forget about the fees. Limited time. So good for the consumers because, you know, they're avoiding lots of fees that they you know otherwise would have been you know racked up and laid on. Good for the city because they didn't have to, you know, they didn't have to pay you know, exorbitant amounts to a collection firm to collect pennies on the dollar. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on and doing this with us. Before we let you go, we always like giving our guests a chance to tell us, tell the get or tell our audience uh, where they can learn more about El Toro. Yeah. Eltoro.com, E-L-T-O-R-O.com. Not eToro, which is a very popular crypto trading platform. Some of their clients come to us. Some of our clients might go to them. But like, if you go to our website and it's about crypto trading, that's the wrong Stacy website. If you go to our site and it's about ad tech, IP targeting, and advanced analytics, that's the right place. Awesome. Thanks so much, Stacy. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks. 